Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. This Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast, or it's simpler to use a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from France 24, NHK World Radio Japan, Radio Havana Cuba, and Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. We will begin with France 24. The United Nations COP15 Biodiversity Summit in Montreal concluded with an agreement to protect 30% of the planet by 2030, which was applauded and criticized. A conservation researcher says that the rights of the indigenous peoples of the world as caretakers of their own lands were not protected. Many of those lands are being mined, deforested, or have become biofuel plantations. In Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu has announced a coalition that critics call the most far-right government in the country's history, France 24. Now, the deal to protect 30% of the planet by 2030, thrashed out by the COP15 Biodiversity Summit in Montreal, has been hailed as a historic step by many international organisations, despite DR Congo arguing that developed nations should provide more resources to poorer countries to roll back habitat destruction. Now, some conservationists have also said that the text was a mixed bag. I'm joined now by Dr. Abby Sene, a researcher in conservation social science, who says that the deal pulls its punches when it comes to safeguarding the rights of indigenous people as stewards of their own lands. Um, Doctor, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us. Now, first of all, just explain what uh, indigenous rights have got to do with conservation. Sure. Well, there are several reasons why indigenous land rights are central to global conservation. First, it's not coincidental that much of the lands targeted for conservation are on indigenous territories. Land, especially in the Congo River Basin in Africa, for example, are some of the most biodiverse because indigenous and local people have stewarded those landscapes for millennials, right? And so there's ample evidence that indigenous natural resource management system protect and enrich biodiversity in those lands. Um, second, it is also estimated that up to 80% of existing protected areas overlap with land indigenous people and people of African descent inhabit and manage. And their livelihood and culture of those communities are directly tied to their ancestral lands. And so they have a vested interest in protecting those ecosystems against extractive and exploitative activities from corporations. And so all evidence point to the reality that indigenous and local communities are the best custodians of those lands targeted for conservation. And we cannot address this ecological crisis without the robust protection of the land rights and sovereignty of those indigenous people. So what were you hoping to see from COP15? Why was that the right forum uh, to have this, this, this issue of Indigenous rights specifically mentioned? 
COP15 is where the 30 by 30 plan, which is also known as the Global Biodiversity Framework, was negotiated. And the plan intends to expand the coverage of conservation areas for biodiversity from 17 to 30 percent by 2030. This framework sets the standard for how global biodiversity is going to be achieved and implemented. So conservation has a long history of human rights violations where indigenous communities are tortured and forcibly evicted from those land to create protected or conser conservation areas like national parks and nature reserve. And so many fear that this plan will lead to further violence. And so the ongoing evictions of the Maasai people today in Tanzania and Luliondo is to expand the conservation areas, an example of the kinds of indigenous rights violations that can take place under this new COP15 agreement that was um, passed last night. And so another issue, too, is that even though protected areas are created for the protection of biodiversity, extractive activities like mining, logging, biofuel plantations on these lands are happening at an alarming rate. And the Rainforest Foundation has documented concession issues to extractive corporations. And some of the most documented concessions are also in the DR Congo. But there are also lesser known cases in other African countries, like in my home country of Senegal, where the government issued a mining concession to Petowal Mining Company in the south of Nyokoloko National Park in 2016. And so if the, if the agreement out of COP15 doesn't make robust provision to protect local community land rights. It leaves the door open not only for human rights violation, but also for more extractive and ecologically damaging activities in conservation areas. Dr. Abby Seni, thank you so much for giving us uh, that insight into the important link between uh, Indigenous rights, the link of Indigenous communities to their land, and global efforts to boost conservation. Down to the wire. Benjamin Netanyahu's last-minute announcement of a coalition government drew mixed reactions on the streets of Jerusalem. This is a bad government. It's very bad. It's racist. And I don't believe it will last more than a year. I hope it doesn't. We hope that this government will uh, be a real right-wing government that will uh, do a lot of good for the nation of Israel, build the country, build uh, new settlements. After weeks of negotiations following his November election victory, Netanyahu, already Israel's longest-serving prime minister, is on the verge of returning to power once again, with the help of far-right and ultra-Orthodox partners. Among the incendiary figures in his power-sharing deal, Itamar Ben-Gmir, who was once convicted of incitement to racism, has been appointed security minister to take charge of the national police. Bezalel Smotrich, who has been accused in the past of plotting violent attacks against Palestinians, is set to have widespread authority over West Bank settlement construction, in addition to being finance minister. Avi Maos, who has described himself as a proud homophobe, will control parts of the country's education system. The New York Times wrote, Mr Netanyahu will lead a hardline six-party coalition whose members seem to upend the judicial system, reduce Palestinian autonomy in the occupied West Bank, further strengthen Israel's Jewish character and maximise state support for the most religious Jews. The Belgian paper Le Soir ran a headline reading Israel is putting in place the most extremist government in its history. The United States and the European Union have both said they will judge the new government by its policies, not its personalities.
Those reports were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website france24.com as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English. Next, NHK Japan. A report on how Japan is moving away from its pacifist constitution. North Korea denounced the Japanese move to potentially launching preemptive strikes against other countries. A high court in Britain has ruled that the plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda is lawful. NHK Japan Newly declassified documents reveal behind-the-scenes discussions over the first overseas operation for Japan's self-defense forces. Thirty years ago, the team helped clear mines from the Persian Gulf. The United States had failed to persuade Japan to join its coalition following Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. Our pacifist constitution does not allow us to take part in the military coalition. We need to offer due financial support. Tokyo provided $13 billion, a move some outside Japan described as too little too late. Debate within the government over the role of the self-defense forces continued. The vice foreign minister pushed to send an SDF unit on a mine-clearing mission, saying Japan should help secure the waters it relies on to import oil. But one senior official wondered if that contradicts the law, saying international cooperation cannot be the sole reason for sending the SDF overseas. Two weeks later, bureaucrats found a different rationale. The mission's purpose would be ensuring the safety of Japanese ships after the ceasefire. A team was dispatched and disposed of 34 mines. Japan would soon enact a law enabling the SDF to take part in peacekeeping operations. That's allowed it to expand its work, including joining the UN mission in South Sudan and combating piracy off the Somalian coast. North Korea is slamming the Japanese government for overhauling its defense strategy and introducing new counter-strike capabilities. It comes just days after the North launched two missiles capable of reaching Japan. North Korea's foreign ministry issued a statement on Tuesday. It claimed the defense policy changes could allow Japan to carry out preemptive strikes against other countries, Japan's policies would require confirmation that an enemy has initiated an attack. The North suggested that will cause a serious security crisis on the Korean Peninsula and in East Asia. The statement said North Korea has the right to carry out what it called bold and decisive military measures in light of Japan's actions. The Japanese government approved the national security strategy and two other documents at a cabinet meeting last Friday. They allow Japan to strike enemy bases under specific circumstances, but never preemptively. A British court has ruled a plan to deport some migrants to Rwanda is lawful. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said his government will execute the policy as quickly as possible. Well, I welcome the decision of the court today. We've always maintained that our Rwanda policy is lawful. I'm pleased that was uh, confirmed today. And this is just one part of our plan to tackle illegal migration. 
The government in April announced a plan to send people who illegally enter Britain to Rwanda. In exchange for accepting them, the East African country will receive financial aid. Opponents had called the plan inhumane and challenged its legality in court. Human rights group Amnesty International said the High Court's decision is very disappointing. We are opposed to that for a wide range of reasons, including Rwanda's own human rights record and its need to address the rights of people who have sought asylum on its territory. Government data show about 45,000 migrants have crossed the English Channel this year from France to arrive in the UK, the highest since record-keeping began in 2018. Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard from 8.30 to 9 p.m. at 9.865 or on the web at www.3.nhk.or.jp. They also podcast at most podcast sites. All the times I announce are for Pacific Standard Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. On to Radio Havana, Cuba. Bolivian President Arce met with WikiLeaks delegations and supported the freedom and withdrawal of all charges against Julian Assange. In Peru, the military and police have killed 24 citizens who were demanding general elections and the freeing of former President Castillo. Relatives of the 24 victims marched with their coffins to town squares, calling for the resignation of Dina Bularte and new elections. Mexico granted political asylum to the family of Pedro Castillo. United Nations Secretary General Guterres announced a no-nonsense climate meeting in September 2023 because governments have failed to bring down emissions. Radio Havana, Cuba. Bolivian President Luis Arce met in La Paz over the weekend with a delegation of WikiLeaks people during which he expressed his full support for the freedom and withdrawal of charges of the founder of that information platform, Julian Assange. In the meeting that was also attended by Maria Nela Prada, the Bolivian Minister of the Presidency, President Arce told WikiLeaks editor-in-chief Christine Rafson and editor Joseph Farrell that he fully supports Assange, the media outlet said on its official Twitter account. Iceland's Rafson, for his part, posted on the same social network that the Bolivian president, quote, adds his voice to those fighting for Assange's freedom and calls for U.S. charges against him to be dropped. He added, quote, in a private meeting today, the president spoke of the serious implications for freedom of the press if Julian is extradited to the United States. The Bolivian president went on, quote, we agree that one of the foundations of democracy is not to condemn the right to tell the truth, as unfortunately happens with journalist Julian Assange. We hope that this unjust persecution will soon come to an end. In Peru, the death toll from the repression by police and military forces of popular demonstrations demanding general elections and a new constitution, this has increased to 24, an official source reported Sunday evening. 
In its most recent balance, the Ministry of Health, or MINSA, confirmed on its official Twitter account that during the nationwide public demonstrations, a total of 77 people have also been hospitalized. Peru has been experiencing a period of social protests since December the 7th, when the Congress appointed Dina Boluarte as president of the country after dismissing the head of state, Pedro Castillo, who is in preventive prison accused of the alleged crime of rebellion. Boluarte, who declared a state of national emergency for 30 days, affirmed this Saturday that she will remain in office and called on the Congress to bring forward the general elections to 2023. Around midnight on Saturday, the police released 26 peasants who were arbitrarily detained for about 14 hours in the facilities of the Confederation Campesina de Peru, or the CCP, in Lima that had been raided earlier in the day. The relatives of Peruvians killed by repressive forces marched with their coffins of their loved ones to the main square of Huamanga, the capital of Ayek. Cucho, where they demanded punishment of those responsible for their deaths and the resignation of President Dina Boluarte. Justice, we want justice, was the phrase that resounded through the streets of Ayacucho, where nine protesters were killed last week when the Peruvian government decreed a curfew to try to contain the massive demonstrations that broke out throughout the country. On December the 15th, Ayacucho became one of the epicenters of the protests where demonstrators demanded the holding of immediate general election, the closure of Congress and the release of former President Pedro Castillo. On that day, the military attacked the citizens who were trying to take over the Alfredo Melniville Duarte Airport. On Monday, the Joint Command of the Armed Forces tried to justify the use of force in Ayacucho by arguing the existence of an attack carried out by bad Peruvians. General Manuel Gomez de la Torre said, quote, We have remained firm in the face of the threats to our national security. We have gradually recovered normalcy on highways, airports and cities. Nevertheless, local outlet La Repubblica highlighted that the military authorities have not explained how some people who were merely observing the Ayacucho airport events were shot and wounded. Marcelo Ebra, Mexico's Secretary of Foreign Affairs, announced Tuesday that his government has granted political asylum to the family of the ousted president of Peru, Pedro Castillo, while noting that it is a sovereign decision of the country. The Mexican Foreign Minister affirmed during the morning news conference of President Andres Manuel López Obrador that, quote, asylum has already been granted because they are in Mexican territory, that is to say, they are in our embassy, and when they are in the embassy, they are granted asylum. It is an independent, sovereign decision of Mexico. At the same time, Mexico's top diplomat pointed out that they are currently negotiating the safe conduct with which they could leave Peru and remain in Mexico. Previously, the Mexican president expressed the day before in favor of holding early elections in Peru in order to reach a solution to the crisis faced by the country that has left more than 20 people dead. President López Obrador assured, quote, We have the doors open for the president of Peru, Pedro Castillo, for his family and for all those who feel harassed and persecuted in Peru, because that is the tradition of our foreign policy. In response, on Tuesday, Peru ordered Mexico's ambassador to leave the Andean country within 72 hours, declaring him persona non grata.
And in the latest development, Peruvian media reports that after the government of Dina Boluarte decided to grant them safe conduct to leave the country, Lilia Paredes, the former First Lady of Peru, and her youngest children left early Wednesday morning for Mexico as seekers of political asylum. As the goal of avoiding global warming of more than 1.5 degrees Celsius begins to slip out of reach, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says, quote, The United Nations will host a no-nonsense climate summit in 2023, this to spur action from governments on the climate crisis. Speaking at a year-end news conference on Monday, Guterres said the world was moving in the wrong direction on climate change and that governments had fallen short on their commitments to bring down emissions. Guterres said that the United Nations would host the summit in September with the aim of holding governments accountable and demanding tangible plans for improvement. Quote, the invitation is open, but there is a price of entry, and the price of entry is non-negotiable, credible, serious, and new climate action. Guterres said, going on, quote, it will be a no-nonsense summit, no exceptions, no compromises, and there will be no room for greenwashers, backsliders, blame-shifters. While governments and international bodies have acknowledged the urgency of climate change, critics have denounced the international community's failure to rein in emissions as the climate crisis devastates communities around the world. Drought, heat waves and floods driven partly by climate change are upending the lives of millions of people, especially those in poor countries. Countries are under pressure to ensure emissions are cut in half by 2030 and down to net zero by 2050, which is the only path to hold global warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius, a goal agreed upon by the 2015 Paris Agreement, a binding international treaty. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu. There's no podcast up there. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140, and from 5 p.m. to 11 at either 6000, 6060, or 6165. At their website, radiohc.cu, you could stream their English version at noon, Monday through Friday, Pacific Standard Time. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California, 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show, which I freely distribute to radio stations and the Internet, like listeners in Upper Lake and Willits, California, did this week. Many, many thanks. We will conclude with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. The Dutch Prime Minister formally apologized for his country's role in slavery, admitting it was a crime against humanity. A campaigner from St. Martin, a former Dutch colony in the Caribbean Sea, explains why she rejects the apology. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle.
Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte has apologized for his country's role in slavery, calling it a crime against humanity. The Netherlands once had an extensive colonial empire, including at different times areas in Southeast Asia, Africa and the Americas. The Dutch government is now planning to step up education and awareness efforts aimed at tackling racism in the Netherlands, where reminders of slavery are still very easy to find. There's a lot to unwrap here, and for that, we're joined by Rhoda Arendelle. She's the president of One SXM, an association from St. Martin, an island in the Caribbean that was colonized by the French and the Dutch. Her association aims to promote greater unity among the people of St. Martin. Welcome to DW. Your association has started a petition to ask the government of St. Martin not to accept the Dutch prime minister's apology. Can you explain why? Primarily because we didn't expect the way it was pushed that the, the apology would be a sincere apology or a, a legal and valid apology as we have been asking for for years now. And after hearing it today, we are convinced that it does not measure up to the standards of what an official legal apology should look like. What should the Netherlands do to prove that this is a sincere apology, a, a legal apology, as you say, and that they really do want to make amends? One of the things that we recognize is that reparations are to be part of the conversation, right? If we're speaking about reparatory justice, the mere fact that the Netherlands government has already said that we will have a discussion about an apology, but we're not going to be discussing reparation. That's already a false start. That means they are not sincere. They are not, they are, they are not looking to repair, to restore or to compensate. And, and the discussion that there's going to be 200 million Euro set aside for awareness says to us it's almost an insult. Where do we go from here? What should the next steps look like to include you and your community in the process and, and achieve something like reconciliation if there can be such a thing? For us, it's not up to the Netherlands to decide. Eh? As far as we are concerned, as far as one SXM is concerned, this is a process that has been ongoing in the Caribbean. Um, in 2013, the CARICOM go heads of government set up their reparations commission. St. Martin does not yet have an official reparations commission, but one SXM has filed to become an official member of the CARICOM reparations commission. That's for us is our, is our first step. We are busy doing our own research. We have. Um, implored our government to set up a reparations commission officially and we've asked our parliament to engage in discussions with the people in St. Martin. That's where we start. As far as we are concerned in 1SXM, we don't care what the Netherlands does. The Netherlands is going to do what the Netherlands often does, you know, present an agenda in the interest of the Netherlands, regardless to how it affects other people. This is why we're having this conversation today about reparations and slavery and, and apology. Had the Netherlands not operated from a place of greed in the interest of the Netherlands, we would not be here having this conversation today. So we're saying, let the Netherlands do what the Netherlands does all the time. We in St. Martin, in the Caribbean, are busy with our own study, with our own research. We do not wish to be rushed into it as it was done with the Netherlands. There was no discussion with St. Martin when the report was written. Um, the report on which the Netherlands is basing this apology, the Netherlands has not yet said to us why the magical date of December 19th, which was just revealed within a few months that now this official apology. So that nowhere in the process will we engage in the conversation of what the apology should look like. 
or when it does come, how we are going to be involved in getting to reconciliation, as you mentioned. It's a one-sided colonial approach, and we reject it. Rhoda Arundel, president of One SXM from St. Martin. Thank you so much for your time. That report was from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, dw.com, as well as on YouTube at their channel, DW News and DW Documentary. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and EU prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with a podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 26th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.